The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Welcome back to Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast, where we don't really talk about Star Wars that much. Ah! My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic, and people call me Talon Gendro. Nice. My Star Wars name. I get it. For today. Sure. I'll come up with a new one at some point. I'm Bibbs Bibbs. You'd be like Bibbs Bobino or something. Well, there actually is a Star Wars character named Bib Fortuna. Oh yeah. Which so I guess I'd be Bibbs Fortuna. I have that weird, weird, like long thing growing out of my head and wrapped around my neck. Where, do, where does he show up in Star Wars? Uh, he's in uh, Return of the Jedi. He's uh, Jabba the Hutt's translator. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got like a big horn around his neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's Bib Fortuna. Yep. Yeah. You you can be Bib, Bibbs Fortuna. It's kind of hard to like. And you have wear shirts, and you're a clone of him. And it yeah. turns out your clone DNA was mixed with Boba Fett DNA, and also you're a child of a dyad of the Force. And it turns out the, the anyway. Emperor. Episode zero is a podcast. <laughs> episode zero is a podcast in which we talk about Star Wars, but we use Star Wars to reflect upon the history of film that inspired Star Wars. We're not so much interested in the future of Star Wars, other than you know curiosity, or necessarily the plot, or the the various would they or wouldn't they, or the why fors of Star Wars. We're interested in Star Wars' place in history as an amalgam. Mm-hmm. Of the various influences that inspired it and all of the other films in the franchise. And we think it's a really, really useful tool to use Star Wars as the lens through which we look back at cinema history and learn about different kinds of films. Mm-hmm. Many of which Whitney and I are very familiar with, but in the case of this week's film, something that I had never seen before. It is a short film that had a profound impact on a young film student named George Lucas. It is a film called 2187. Many people feel that that in in sort of the contemplation of nature and uh, in communication with other living things, they become aware of some kind of... uh, force or or something behind this apparent mask which we see in front of us and they call it god or they you know depending on on their particular disposition okay whitney yes. uh, that quote is kind of the the headshot yeah. here but let's Let's talk a little bit about right. 2187. What is 2187? 2187 is a nine and a half minute uh, short film produced by the uh, Film Board of Canada. Uh, it's terrifying. Uh, 
Really? Like, well, the first, I mean, the first thing, you, it's like a black space, and you see, like, National Film Board of Canada, and you hear all these weird um, industrial mechanical sounds, a lot of uh, mechanical sounds that might uh, you might hear in, like, a, a an industrial 90s, mm. like, prog rock kind of piece. <laughs> and then the title appears over an image of a human skull. So I'm, I'm already kind of in, like, Eraserhead nightmare territory. But it is uh, an abstract montage film that consists of discarded scraps of film and uh, a bunch of interviews that were just sort of edited together in a particularly clever way to reflect on question mark. Uh, it's it's um, <laughs> well, in the case of 2187, uh, it's sort of the interconnectivity of things. Uh, mm. 2187 was comprised of footage left over. Yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, from various other uh, film shoots and productions. Um, and uh, Arthur Lipset, uh, who uh, made several avant-garde short films. In fact, Stanley Kubrick was a great admirer and uh, had asked Arthur Lipset to do the trailer for Dr. Strangelove. And when Lipset mm. said no, Kubrick was... If you watch the trailer for Dr. Strangelove, you'll see that it pairs quite nicely with something like 2187. Yeah. It's made out of a lot of uh, montage well, and... and you can- um, you can, you can actually see, if you know uh, Kubrick's career, you know that he was a, a, fo- a photographer before he became a filmmaker, and he was really interested, especially if you see his early movies, in a kind of very warts and all textured, uh, naturalistic photography style. He liked a lot of stark shadows, but he also liked to sort of capture uh, the truth of, and kind of grit of real life urban settings. Mm. Uh, and that's what most of the imagery from 2187 is. It's a lot of just sort of people. There's a lot of people going to fairs. There's a lot of people on the streets, people mm. who don't necessarily know they're being filmed. And something yeah. I noticed uh, about when I was watching this, cause it came out in the 1960s. Yeah. People didn't have cameras in their pockets. Uh, if somebody walks down the street holding a camera now, people like leap in front and start dancing. It's like, they want to be people recorded. are ready to be recorded yeah, because it's, yeah. it's kind of, Common now. That, that's that's just sort of the way people are thinking. I yeah. could be filmed at any minute. People are looking at me. I'm a celebrity. It's that weird sort of mindset, mm-hmm. or um, just comfort. It's the, being okay, on camera absolutely. isn't weird now. Yeah. Um, in 1963, this this you know who, all the various camera people who are filming all of these little snippets are wandering around the streets of big cities uh, in in Canada and. The people all look very uncomfortable. I think mm-hmm. we're getting a much more unadulterated view of humanity. So we're seeing a lot of these very frank, uh, ecstatically real emotions in rapid succession mm-hmm. uh, over, you know, all, all like sort of strung together. And playing over them all is people talking about what you just said, the, the interconnectivity of things. And of course, the quote that George Lucas took from this is about how no matter what you where you stand or what you believe, there is some sort of force that binds us. Mm-hmm. And the word force is, of course, very significant to Star Wars. Yeah, uh, so that actually, that quote mm-hmm. from 2187, uh, it was actually spoken by a really interesting figure in film history, Roman Kreuter. Do you know the name of Roman Kreuter? I do. Co-founded um, IMAX. Yeah. So uh, Roman Kreuter was a cinematographer uh, who did um, a lot of significant work in the film industry. And uh, that particular uh, uh, quote was a conversation between 
uh, Kreuter and a man named uh, Rome, Warren S. McCulloch, who uh, helped pioneer the science of artificial intelligence. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Yeah. And so McCulloch was talking about, uh, and this is my understanding of what this clip came from, McCulloch was talking about the idea of humanity basically being machines. Mm. And if you actually look into the biology of, of humans, I mean, yeah, we're made out of moisture and meat, but in many respects, <laughs> electrical we're, impulses, we're, we're yeah. mechanical organisms in a lot of way. We run on electricity. We need lubricant for our joints to move. The way that our brains work is neurons either fire or they mm. don't. That's a binary system. That's what computing language is based on. Um, so he had an argument to make, and Kreuter retorted with a discussion about that, you know, there may indeed be a, a, a force mm-hmm. that people feel, whether they call it God or something else, that speaks to humanity as something that goes beyond our nuts and bolts and our parts. Mm-hmm. It is the interconnectivity of things. So, yeah, and yeah, George Lucas heard that mm-hmm. and eventually created in Star Wars... The Force, which mm. is not just a vague allusion to the interconnectivity of things, but its own religion. Yeah, and I, I'm i listening to this, and, um, well, first of all, I, I was thinking a lot of Douglas Hofstadter, who wrote a book mm. called Goodell Escher Bach, and it was uh, essentially uh, this really interesting, very poetic, kind of strangely colloquial, now feels kind of dated home about the nature of artificial intelligence. And it goes to that very thing that uh, a lot of people who are interested in artificial intelligence try to look at humanity as a machine of sufficient complexity. Mm. And if you make a machine of sufficient complexity and it looks and acts like a human, how much, how much does it matter if it's like actually conscious? Um, However, uh, there's to counter that there was a great quote in an episode of Star Trek, the next generation, where uh, the Enterprise had been infected by this, like, widget from another dimension, and it started to, like, interconnect everything on the ship, and the ship itself started to develop this sort of rudimentary consciousness, and of course, because it's Star Trek, it all manifested on the holodeck, and they had to go into the holodeck and interpret what was going on there, Uh, and they talked about you have a holodeck every... The, the, every, every every problem looks like a holodeck episode. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till we get to Voyager. Oh, Ooh. golly. There's so much holodeck crap on Voyager. But uh, Data has this bit where he takes, like, a schematic of a human neuron, his own, like, robot neural net, and how the ship was now laying itself out. And he talked about how you can look at humanity as a series of biological functions, but none of those functions goes to explain consciousness. And they, he described consciousness as an emergent property. That mm. is the thing that appears uh, that is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, because if you think about it, there's no particular reason mm. for a biological organism to be self-aware and think about itself and have neuroses mm. and yeah. anxieties. Yeah. We could all be as rudimentary as all of our pets. Not that our pets don't have personalities, but we have weird complexities and we have shared uh, experiences and we have invented things like language and art in order mm-hmm. to communicate our individual perspectives with each other and come up with something that, yeah, we don't all agree on every single part of it, but is basically a shared reality. Mm. And is that shared reality not arguably on some level itself the force? Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> but here's my problem yeah. with this. And, and it's one of the things that frustrates me about uh, the force 
as it is in, in Star Wars. And I don't want to go for, too far down this rabbit hole because actually there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about 2187 and its influence on mm. Lucas's work technically. But while we're talking about the Force and we're talking about how this idea for the Force came from a conversation about the difference between human experience and artificial intelligence, why aren't sentient beings like the droids that we follow in Star Wars also connected to the Force? Well, or are they? Yeah. And well, that's I, a question. Here, here's the thing. The, the idea that the droids are sentient, I don't think is something George Lucas thought about. And mm-hmm. this goes to uh, not just the quote from 2187, but um, uh, an emerging belief system that at least the young George Lucas was adhering to because uh, George Lucas saw this film, and uh, then he made THX eleven thirty, or what, what's the full title? Um, oh, the original THX. Th- yeah, uh, the, the original uh, short film. It was yeah. called uh, Electronic Labyrinth THX eleven thirty eight four EB. That's the, <laughs> the full title of his short film. And by the way, great title. Yeah, <laughs> that's it, an amazing well, title. Electronic Labyrinth THX eleven thirty eight four EB. Yeah, that that is that's an eye catching title. It's like I want to see that yeah, shit. What yeah. is that? Is that an album? Can I get that on Spotify? Because I bet that rocks. Now, THX eleven thirty eight, the short film and the feature that uh, that I actually watched for the first time in preparation for this. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen it before, uh, and, and we'll get into this in a little bit, but. The short film he made, and also lingering around 2187, it's 21-87, by the way, it's not the year 2187, Yeah, uh, is this idea that we're essentially living in a dystopia where we have been separated by technology. Mm. That's very that's like the primary theme of THX 1138, especially the feature film, but also the short. Yeah, the short, the short, short doesn't delve very much. It's basically just but, sort of an action sequence. Yeah, the short is essentially a guy theme. running away from all of technology and about how this sort of a oppressive 1984-like tech system is yeah. claiming to, re, you know, is reaching out to reclaim him. He has a number on his forehead. Yeah. And yeah, he doesn't have identity. He just has letters and numbers. Yeah. Everything we learn about uh, the world we learn through mm. this chase sequence. And we'll talk yeah. about that in more detail. Man. And I feel like it, it's really curious that you know, young George Lucas is so different from the George Lucas he was to become. Mm. Because this is a young filmmaker who is clearly concerned with where humanity is in an increasingly technified world. Uh, we are being over-modernized. Uh, you see this in a lot of Japanese film as well, about the sort of c- conflicts between modernity and uh, and ancient traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in uh, THX 1138, and I think this is hinted out in 2187, is this idea, because people are talking about sort of God and how they feel about God and how they feel about the things that connect us as human beings and... 2187 might strike you as a little bit more cynical because everybody has sort of a different view as to the things that connect us. Mm-hmm. THX 1138 is Well, also it's very, found. Like, yeah, it's, not, it's not necessarily the viewpoint of one filmmaker. Mm. It's something that is, a, you know, the idea it's, of It's that a little bit of, more of a contemplation of the many things that might bind us or not bind us. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, George Lucas had a little bit more of a specific thought that he wanted to, to explore. Right. Uh, and... You know, in showing that we need to sort of run away from the system and find something that's actually, quote, real mm. within all of this artificiality, within all of this technology. And, it, you know, in, in the feature film, it gets up, you know, delving into human connection, your real emotions, and in at the end of THX 1138, actual nature. Mm-hmm. The things that actually bind us are not the things we will build. Yeah. 
This is the same guy who in 2002 insisted that theaters install digital projectors so he could push oh. film technology forward. This he is the guy who turned obsessed. This is the guy who turned THX the the letters mm. which are originally the name of a character who was fighting to escape from mm. a corporate driven hellscape. He was trying to rid himself of that yeah. name yeah. and then branded it. Branded it and turned and it into that's a, tech, what we, a tech company. That's what that's yeah. what sound systems are. They're THX certified now. Mm. Like that's irony. Yeah. And I yeah. actually, you know, watching 2187 and using it to sort of unlock, I think I think 2187, in a way, unlocks George Lucas's whole filmography mm. in a lot of really interesting ways. Uh, real, real fast, before we move on to the, the ways and the films that it inspired, I just want to talk a little bit about 2187 because I know some people watched this for the first time, just like we did. We'd never mm-hmm. seen this short film before uh, this last week. And a lot of people were like, huh. Yeah. Oh, well, if- and it's an experimental film. And mm-hmm. experimental films are films that typically aren't beholden to what we would consider the conventions of cinema. They don't mm-hmm. necessarily tell linear stories or any story at all. They are designed to poke you and make you question things that we sort of assume are true about art. Yeah, well, and uh, also, you know, filmmakers are interested in exploring the format. Yeah. There's no rules at all to film. Uh, we, we've invented some. Yeah, if you want to, we can make break a, them when we yeah, want. If you to. want to make a certain kind of you know fictional feature, then yeah, then there are some rules that a lot of people like to abide by. I'm not going to say you have to follow. But there, are, there are expectations uh, the audience have. If you betray those expectations, the audience might turn on you. I'm like, I don't think 2187 would ever be like a blockbuster film that makes a billion dollars be an interesting world if it did but yeah okay people tend to like their art to be you know comforting and familiar and that's that's something that star wars does it takes a lot of influences things that we already understand puts them all together in a fun way so that everyone can appreciate it 2187 is about taking imagery and audio which were never intended to go together and juxtaposing them in ways that challenge you to make connections mm-hmm. on your own. There's a, a simple basic technique uh, in editing where we take one image. I'm only going to talk about imagery for a second, but it works in sound as well. Mm. We take editing for granted sometimes, and sometimes we don't think about just how powerful it is to cut from one shot to another. Yeah. When you have an image, let's say you're looking at Whitney's face. Handsome devil that he is. Oh, golly. But you're looking at Whitney's face. Now, if you... That's a shot. He's moving. He's looking off camera. What you cut to affects our perception of that moment. If you cut to just another angle of Whitney, you're thinking more about Whitney. You're thinking about him from different angles and different perspectives. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, oh, what is he looking at? If you cut to what he's looking at, we're now in the perspective of Whitney. Mm. And we're actually seeing... Kind of, if not literally, through his eyes. Mm. And as a result, we are now in his experience. If, on the other hand, we cut from Whitney to an airplane, Mm. well, all of a sudden we have to do some work. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, is Whitney on that airplane now? Is this the past? Is Whitney thinking about that airplane? Is is, is he on the airplane? Did he go to the airplane? Does this connect to absolutely nothing? And then if we cut from that airplane to Whitney sitting in the airplane, ah... My theory no, was yeah. was true. So you're, if off, on, you're off you're off center for a little bit, and then you're comforted yeah, yeah. and film if on the other hand, you, way, yeah. you cut from Whitney to the airplane to a caterpillar. Now we're in the realm of the abstract, and we as people, 
want to form connections to things. We mm. want to turn the abstract yes. into something that we're familiar with. And this this goes back to the Douglas Hofstadter book I was talking about. Hof, yes. Hofstadter book uh, I was talking uh, about. Another good sort of simple uh, version of this, and I don't mean simple in a negative way, I just mean it's really easy to digest. Uh, if you read Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics... Very, very good book. We it's read a, that in film school. It's and, an excellent book. I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in film. Some of it is very specific to comics, but most of it applies to all like forms the, of visual storytelling. The, the per, the, our, our perceptions of art. Are, there's yeah. some really interesting theories. And there's in there. there's there's a lot of really digestible. But mm-hmm. when I was a kid and I read it, mind blowing stuff. Uh, about uh, subjectivity, uh, about the definitions expre- of art, uh-huh. yeah, about expressionism, and mm-hmm. that if they don't have a one-to-one sort of application to cinema, it's only like two degrees of Kevin Bacon away mm-hmm. from being something that we can apply to cinema. Mm-hmm. And I highly recommend that book if you haven't read it. Um, but yeah, so the idea of editing things in a chronological or linear way. That's the most common way that we edit. And the majority of films, if you actually looked at sort of the difference between one shot and the next shot, it's usually uh, action to action mm-hmm. or, or observance to observance. And then maybe there'll be a time lapse and an establishing shot. Every once in a while, there'll be a jarring cut to something that we don't understand, but then quickly the editing goes back around and it lets the, the relationship make sense. When something like 2187, there's very little of that. It's clear when you're watching the short film that a lot of this footage comes from probably four or five different sources. There's footage from a carnival, footage from a fashion show, footage of just people walking around in New York City, and we revisit those basic locations. But other than that, they have no direct connection to each other. The audio has very little directly to do with what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. And as a result, our brains are fighting to make connections. And it's easy to imagine a young George Lucas, someone who had grown up, as he had said, with very sort of conventional mainstream uh, access to film, Mm -hmm. seeing this in film school and all of a sudden... Films can do this. Yeah, yeah. it's a big and, mind blower, and it's easy to see why this yeah. really inspired him to do some different things. And what I, I'm, I'll let you talk in right. a second, but just to establish what I want to talk about, I think that if you look at the way that George Lucas looked at twenty one eighty seven, you'll see that I feel like THX one one three eight is looking at 2187 from the perspective of the future, hmm. and I think Star Wars is looking at it from the perspective of the past. Hmm. I think Star Wars is a hopeful past in which the interconnectivity of things leads to fun and adventure and greater hmm. understanding and a, a, a triumph yeah. over adversity. He sees the past as something that has passed and is therefore good. Hmm. When you look at THX one one three eight, this interconnectivity of things is not this beautiful religious experience that connects us all and leads to fun adventures and friendships. It feels like a fracturing. It's a fracturing, and a lot of the times that he uses those techniques where he's using overlaying uh, imagery that seems disparate or sound design from a variety of different sources, um, a lot of it is actually a surveillance state. Mm. It's a group of people who looked at the interconnectivity of things and said, we have to control that. Yeah, yeah. And um, so THX is cynical. Star Wars is optimistic. And I see. Oh, and I think he's cynical about the future. I think mm. he's optimistic about the past. I, I think that's interesting. Uh, and also Star Wars takes place at the very beginning. It says a long time ago. Exactly. And I feel like 
you look at Star Wars. What where do what do the heroes live? You know, we we first meet uh, Luke Skywalker. He's out in the desert. Mm-hmm. It's a farm. Yeah, it's, yeah he, it's it's a farm out in the middle of the desert. There's mm-hmm. like very little in the way of technology. Mm-hmm. He ends up meeting an old man who also lives in a cave. He gets like this one piece mm-hmm. of technology, and it's essentially like this magical thing, this light sword. Yeah, it's it's more like this mythic, almost Arthurian thing, more than it is like a piece of tech. Yeah. that he has. Then, and it's never explained. That's why. Yeah. That's why it's magical. Yeah. So yeah. I, a blaster we get. It's a gun, but it shoots energy. We, cool. We've we've lived with the movies for so long, and people. It's like after a while, you just start asking questions. How does that thing even work? Yeah. Oh, okay. Here's a technical manual. There's a crystal in it that yeah. projects. Like it doesn't really matter how. I don't it works. give a shit how a lightsaber uh, works. I really the, don't. That's 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 the purview of Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, Star and but if you look at uh, the Empire in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. They live in these cold machine environments. Yeah. They're not in the natural world. The Empire lives in an environment that would mm. not look out of place in THX one one three A. Yeah, yeah. That's the, what it, they're it, fighting for, the, and that's the why ships the ships are all like pointy. Together. Everything's really square and shiny, and and mm. really kind of sterile. Yeah, there's no and everything's personality. Dark colors. Everybody's really unhappy. Yeah. Yeah, people don't laugh and have a good time. There's no ten forward mm. <laughs> on on a, on a star <laughs> well, destroyer. Even, even if you think about it, one of the things that we've talked about frustrates mm. us about Star Wars is the idea that. Outside of music, we don't really see a lot of art in Star Wars. Yeah. We don't see a lot of people express themselves artistically in Star Wars, but people do express themselves through the clothes that they wear, mm. through their attitudes, through their the way that they speak to one another, and we don't even get that mm. on a Death Star. Yeah, it's so just full of people I in think, uniform, and they're all just yeah. generic evil British guys. Yeah, pretty much. And they all hate each other. Yeah. And, and nobody smiles. And they're all backstabbing because yeah. they want to get ahead. Like, that's it. Yeah. Like, that's what we're fighting against. Mm. So and and you know what is what is the ultimate thing they have to do at the end of Star Wars? They have to blow up a piece of tech, mm-hmm. this gigantic weapon. This yeah. it, it's not like they have to destroy a monster, an animal, this mm-hmm. thing of nature. It's yeah. all it's or even the Emperor per se. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean they, they just do, they have but... to blow up a, a weapon. So yeah. I, I'm seeing in uh, 2187 the way it relates to THX 38 and what you're just saying about sort of this movement of hopefulness to the fracturing of this mm-hmm. hope right in the middle of that is 2187 mm-hmm. into backward into George Lucas's career to THX 1138 uh, is this evolving relationship he had with technology. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting to, when you think about George Lucas as having made functionally only three films, he made star Wars, a bunch of star Wars, mm-hmm. but he made star Wars, THX 1138 and American graffiti. And you might be asking yourself, where does American graffiti fit in? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's more nostalgia than that, Star Wars. Well, first off, a... it's more nostalgia than Star Wars. You're mm-hmm. right about that. But beyond nostalgia, when when we look at sort of uh, Star Wars as this sort of grand opera about ancient heroes mm-hmm. and how that connects to us today, and we look at THX 1138 as a cautionary tale about where we could go. American Graffiti, which was technically a period piece when George Lucas made it in the 70s, mm-hmm. but only by about... 20 years. It was a recent memory for a lot of people, the 1950s. Hmm. So that's now. That's youth. That's people <laughs> on the verge of adulthood who aren't having these big thoughts. Hmm. So that's like, like just comfortably con- right in the they're middle. They're concerned with everything. The only thing they're concerned with is what's right in front of them. They yeah, they're concerned about love. Yeah. They're concerned about fast cars. Mm. They're concerned about having a good time. They're concerned about no. maybe where they're going to college mm. or what their career is going to be. But it's all right mm. now. They're not thinking about the bigger mm. questions the way the no. Jedi are or the mm. way that THX does in THX 1.3. Yeah. Uh, the actual filmmaking of 2187 uh, isn't something that you s- you'll see very much. It's maybe some like vague aesthetic uh, cues like yeah. in terms of editing or pacing but you know 
George Lucas doesn't make that kind of movie. He makes narrative features. Yeah, well, now. Uh, now. When and, he was young, um, he made quite a few shorts. But Yeah, and uh, and I did watch the, the THX 1138 short, and mm-hmm. it, it feels a lot like La Jete. It is kind of abstract. There's a lot yeah. of fast cuts and things you really kind of have to work to put together. Uh, 2187 does come from a long tradition of this kind of experimental filmmaking, the, the montage, or uh, if, if you're a, a 90s counterculture guy, they called it culture jamming oh god i remember that yeah which was a really really cloying way of saying montage Uh, montage but yeah (laughs) montage which is a theory that goes back at least as far as sergey eisenstein they they, they call yeah Yeah. well and and i'm thinking of zika vertov's uh 1922 when did a man with a movie camera come out oh jesus i don't Um, actually know hang on let me look at that up uh, 1929. Okay, okay uh, you got t- it. In uh, Tiga film, A <laughs> Man with a Movie Camera, uh, is yeah this sort of abstract uh, documentary film that mm. is essentially just a lot of various shots of a city in Russia over the course of a day. And mm-hmm. it sort of gives you... Um, Sorry about this. What Hegel calls the zeitgeist. Uh, it's it's. Um... This is some serious film school shit, by the way, and I mean that in a good way. <laughs> Not everyone's going to be interested in this right now, mm. but if you're interested in cinema, this is actually some really important, like, mm. sort of basic theory here. Yeah, about that really affects mm. every film that you've ever seen, whether or not you think mm. about but, it. But yeah, and, and what Zika Vertov was doing was it's more or less a propaganda film, kind of propping up the greatness of the Soviet city. Mm. Well, it, but it paints. Uh, it paints Paints the Soviet city as this well-oiled machine. Yeah, yeah. everything is a machine. Everything is Mm. moving parts, Mm. and that's why I have never gotten through that movie without falling asleep. It's a long. (laughs) It's not. If it was ten minutes, I'd be fine. It's a feature, and after a while, I'm like, I get it. I'm gonna go to sleep. It's it's not. It's 68 minutes, dude. That's a long long. time. It's long enough for me to go to sleep. All right. But Man Man with a Movie Camera. I got the gist of it quickly. It gives you, rather than telling the narrative of a person, uh, it's sort of giving you the spirit of a place, ghost of a place, zeitgeist. And uh, that's sort of what uh, a lot of Hegelian philosophy is centered around. Every time Um, you see a movie in which they establish a sense of place by mm -hmm. showing you a whole bunch of different locations Mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of different people walking around, I don't know, Times Square or whatever, and maybe some music about New York and all that kind of stuff. That's montage. That's montage. That's yeah. that's man with the movie camera. That's twenty one eighty seven. It's it's almost like New York is a character in the piece. Uh, really? <laughs> Watch they came together as well. That's a one hilarious. Of, movie. One of the uh, funniest parody movies ever, and it came long after the parody era was over, yeah, and people just didn't watch just it. Nobody, nobody was paying yeah, attention Merciless parody of the like the Meg Ryan era of rom-com. Yeah, that's, that, that's how they set it up. It's like, oh, it's we met in New York, and everything's really New York-centered in our story. It's all, And they even say this in the movie. It's almost like New York is a character in the film. <laughs> that's something that people used to say in like uh, interviews about rom-coms. Yeah. New York just looks really beautiful. And you've got mail. Yeah, it's almost like it's a character in the film. Like, that was every time you heard that. And as soon as someone started making fun of it, it just clicks. Like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. stupid. I'm off topic. Um, yeah. But you move forward, and there were a lot of uh, uh, really successful uh, kind of nature not documentaries, you could call them, mm. uh, experimental films of a uh, similar ilk. Like, I'm thinking of the mm. Kotze films, yeah. Koyanes Kotze. Uh, there was another one called Baraka, which did mm-hmm. something very similar. All of them are gorgeous. Pho- yeah, beautifully photographed yeah. films. Those are particularly Ko- Koyanes Kotze is actually a cautionary environmental tale because mm. it shows sort of the grandness of the cities, but then how the grandness of the cities is actually eating into the natural world and how the natural world is suffering as a result. It's a really uh, tricky film style to, to pull off mm-hmm. because if you don't have... 
something to if you don't have a thesis you're either going for from the beginning Mm -hmm. or that you find while you're making it you are just presenting a bunch of Mm -hmm. stuff and man when i was in film school anyone who like hadn't like an actor who like Mm -hmm. left a production or something like that or they did couldn't come up with a good idea for a short film or whatever you always knew the person who made like a 2187 collage of stuff hmm. just because they had no ideas they, that they day. were they panicked like anyone yeah. can just put shit together yeah. right and you can tell when there yeah, is but, no guiding voice mm. or perspective but uh, in those the uh and this was also used to great comic effect, and this is where the culture jamming thing came in. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you look at the Church of the Subgenius, uh, a body I belong to, uh, the Church of the Subgenius was, uh, it's often called a parody religion. It does possess some actual philosophy, mm-hmm. um, but it's based on like science fiction movies and some jargon they made up and also smoking a lot of weed. It is sort of a freelance <laughs> atheism. Uh, they say things like, you know, Bob, the deity of the Church of the Subgenius, is a short-term personal savior. You only use Bob for as long as you need him. So yeah. long as you give $35 to the Church of the Subgenius, you get into Subgenius Heaven. Subgenius Hell, way better than Christian Heaven. <laughs> and uh, and they, they always said, you know, it's, triple, uh, it's uh, uh, eternal salvation or triple your money back. So you you get give them 30 bucks and it's like okay well if you find yourself in hell you'll give you your money back somebody's there they're going to give you 90 dollars and also a book that they'll sell you for 90 dollars about uh-huh. how to survive in hell anyway it's all culture jokes. jamming culture jam and a lot of this was expressed through like underground circulated videotapes mm. that was sort of explaining what the bob ethos was the the church of the subgenius and because it's so heavily based on like sort of science fiction movies, the the deity Bob was based on a piece of clip art that they found in a 1950s ad. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these sort of things that were floating around in the American subconscious as what they saw as just sort of the junk of the culture. These weird sort of health hygiene films from the 1950s and these really bad science fiction films, these things that don't really have a philosophy, they started to remix and re-edit these things together to make it sound like they were talking about the Church of the Subgenius. And I think their goal was to use these editing techniques to essentially uncover what was really inside of those things. Mm. It was this weird sort of cultural media vivisection. Do you remember when mm. uh, television started getting, when, when cable came out, basically? Because mm. initially there were only a few channels. Yeah. But once cable came out, there was a common practice called channel surfing. And, you know, yeah. that's what people <laughs> would just call, uh, what's on this channel? And they'll just, what's yeah, on this channel? They'll watch each station for just a few seconds. Right, but that became over. itself a kind of, uh, sort mm. of a found art form mm. where you could just go back and forth between channels and create the sort of montage of everything that's going on right uh-huh. now and sometimes you have hilarious connections where that's, that's where airplane sa- and yeah. Kentucky Fried movie came from yeah and- like they would just leave their VCR on like late at night and just see what was on and mix it up um so anyway it's on some level mm. uh some people can look at something like 2187 and just see a jumble of images but mm. If you're open to the experience of sort of allowing this unconventional type of storytelling or non-storytelling to captivate your brain rather than just turn it off, you could have an epiphany. That's what George Lucas had. And he made a lot of short films when he was uh, at USC, the the University of Southern California, where I didn't go. I went to UCLA, where we hate those guys. (laughs) 
<laughs> you, you, uh, you, that's, that's uh, USC and UCLA have a really horrendous. We have a long, rivalry. we have a long rivalry. Yeah. I actually don't give a shit. In yeah. fact, I know a lot of people who either teach at USC or went to USC. I had a friend in my class in film school. He was an identical twin, mm. and his brother went to USC and he went to UCLA. Oh golly! It was hilarious. A, a schism shall never heal. It was, they were yeah. fine. They were still Lunch. together now. They're great. Um, but. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so he made a lot of shorts in film school, and I've seen some of George Lucas's short films. Uh, he did a film called uh, Freiheit, uh, which is clearly an early sort of version of THX one one three eight. It is about a guy who is running in the woods. Another common film school uh, trope. Um, it's exciting and, to film. You get a lot of edits. Yeah, doesn't and, take a lot of, of tech to do. Yeah, yeah and it was uh, George Lucas's. Apparently, it was his first narrative film, uh, and it's just a guy running away, and he is running, and he is trying to run to a safety, and there is some audio on the soundtrack. It's like three minutes long. There's audio on the soundtrack talking about ideas of liberation and freedom, and then just when he thinks he's going to get to hmm. freedom, he's shot and killed. Fun fact: the guy who plays the runner. In Freyheit is Randall Kleiser, who would go on to direct Grease. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, so that's All fun. Right. Um, so that uses a little bit of elements of 2187, the juxtaposition of sort of high-minded ideas over footage that doesn't necessarily connect to it. But when you connect the two, it turns a story of a guy just running and then getting shot mm. into... Ideally, I mean, it's young and naive, but the idea is that it turns this really simple sequence of events into something that feels profound. Yeah. Then later on, when he did Electronic Labyrinth THX 1138 3EB? 4EB. 4EB. The original short film of that is basically, and we'll talk about THX 1138 mm-hmm. in full in a second, but it's basically the end of THX 1138, where the protagonist is running away from this dystopian city-state, and we follow them on a series of security cameras, some of which are placed stupidly. Who puts a security camera on the floor in the middle of a hallway? People are going to trip <laughs> on that. But aside from that, it is a really uh, sort of a cunning... Uh, way to elevate what was started out basically as a guy running in the woods and now all of a sudden the environment tells a story Mm. the people who are watching him on this montage they're Mm. watching their own version of 2187 and they're making it profound by chasing him and it's very interesting and very bold and very stylish and you can totally see why people encouraged him to turn this into a feature because it was a distinct Mm-hmm. vision of the future. There was not an atypical vision of the future. The idea of the future as something oppressive and soulless had been around for a while and everything from Metropolis, which we'll probably cover on this podcast one day, uh, to 1984 mm-hmm. uh, and beyond. Which, yeah, 1984 had been adapted to a film, but the film, it's like 58 that one came out. Um, was the 58 version of that? I don't remember the, the 80s there's, there's okay. a f- Well, there's one that was made in 1984. I remember which, that. Which, yeah, that... That's a that's a good film. I like I like that yeah. version of 1984. Oh. Um, but the imagery that we would see, the sort of dystopian imagery, it, it was kind of leaking throughout culture at the time. You know, mm-hmm. you look at 2001: A Space Odyssey. There's a lot of visual cues that were coming into THX 1138. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the idea of tech as a dystopia wasn't really like it was discussed in literature, but I don't think we saw it a lot in film yet. Like, it was I agree. just coming into because we had what year was. Um, 
uh, Truffaut's Alphaville Fifty One. Oh, you think four four and Fifty One? Yeah. I was thinking Godard did Alphaville. Godard though, did yeah. Alphaville. I thought you were going to talk about Alphaville. I just uh, I jumped the gun. Uh, one second, Fahrenheit. Yeah, the, the Fahrenheit Four Fifty One was also the seventies. Nineteen sixty six. Sixty six. All right, so yeah. so it does predate. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I guess that's a weird adaptation, yeah. by the way. It's mostly faithful, but. Mm. I, I I'm not sure Truffaut was the best fit for it. He, it, he very it was odd. it was a very strange choice. I did like all of the stuff with Julie Christie in that movie. Oh, she's where, good. Yeah. Where uh, it, it it takes place in the future. People have uh, turned their backs on literature. If you read the Ray Bar- Bradbury original Classic. novel, uh, please read it if you it's haven't. Amazing. But uh, 1984 is one of my favorites. But Fahrenheit yeah. 451 is relevant. And uh, <laughs> so was 1984. Well, yeah, it's still it's still relevant. Uh, it, it, 1984 is about you know what happens when the government goes too far. Fahrenheit 451 is what happens when Americans just sort of let culture go on purpose. Mm-hmm. There wasn't some sort of oppressive government state that took books away. People just sort of stopped reading. People just let yeah. that happen. And yeah. so the idea is books were seen as this thing that it's upsets people. Yeah. Oh, it makes you feel things. Well, that's bad. Burn that. So yeah, people are taking a lot of these drugs and, yeah. uh, and trying not to feel. And there's this wonderful scene in Truffaut's movie where Julie Christie is like at home. She's drinking and taking the pills and every wall is a TV screen. The TVs are as big as the walls. You just sort of get in and every wall is a TV. And she's there and the main character, the, the protagonist comes in and looks at Julie Christie. She's drunk and she looks up and I think she says something like, we need more screens. <laughs> just a wonderful, sublime moment. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's actually... There's, but, uh, uh, I, I, I'm not sure how much dystopia is coming from 2187, but there's definitely a concern in 2187 about the future of humanity. Mm. And that is a concern that George Lucas shared. He didn't like that tech was taking taking things over. Well, and again, and, and, and THX 1138, especially the movie, mm. uh, was taking place in a world that I think a lot of those dystopian books didn't quite predict in that the extent to which our lives would become increasingly technological. Mm. And this is even in the 1970s. And just the idea of this world where people are constantly staring at screens, where people are uh, constantly manipulating switches, where uh, religion mm. no longer even... let's Going off of a version of Catholicism, that's what you see in the movie, uh, where religion isn't you go into a booth and you speak to a person in shadow so that you mm. can confess your sins privately. Like, you go to talk to a picture of Jesus that plays the exact five recorded phrases to you over and over again. Yeah, and, and, and that's all, religion, and that's fine. And they're all about, and get, get this, this is another weird thing for George Lucas, they're all about how comforting it is to consume. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, the, Jesus has, like, another, like, three-letter, four-number code. O-M-M. Oh, yeah. Om. Om. Isn't yeah, that, isn't yeah. that cute? Spir- spirituality there. Having some um, fun. And, uh, yeah. The, By all the way, of, THX1138. Uh, I was a phone number. Yeah, yeah. There's, <laughs> like there's, there's, there's no right. like. There's like, no meaning to that. THX. Some people looks think, really cool. Is my old yeah. phone number. I just there, there, it actually has no like. George Lucas puts a lot of sim- symbolism in his stuff. THX one one three eight doesn't actually mean that much. No, no. no. <laughs> um, Although uh, some people have tried to say like, oh well, but the the his his roommate character mm. is like a little bit more of uh, like the body, and then there's an, another character mm. who's a hologram, and he's the soul, and then yeah. there's uh, the Donald Pleasance character is like the re- the rebellious spirit, and one's maybe the 
it or the ego. Yeah. What, those those are all these are all fine interpretations. Yeah. I'm not sure if any the, of these things the, is explicit. The movie uh, stars Robert Duvall as a person named THX 1138. Everyone has numbers mm-hmm. and letter designations instead of names. Everyone is constantly working. And when they are not working, they are in they are, they are in their apartments, and they are encouraged to take as many sedatives as they possibly can to numb the pain of being alive and prevent them from thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the course of the film, uh, it turns out that Robert Duvall's roommate uh, has stopped taking her meds, and she uh, tricks him into not taking his, and he wakes up from this yeah. monotonous nightmare. And together, they they fall in love, and then she's taken away from him, and he is. Uh, uh, imprisoned, mm. questioned, and then eventually escapes in a really. When you look at the evolution of this chase sequence and how it started in Frey Height and then went to the THX short film and then it went to THX eleven thirty eight, it's like the, it's that's like the a last... re- that's a great final version, man. Yeah, it's really it's, cool and it's it's long. It's a big part of the movie. Yeah, it's uh, exciting. Yeah. There's good stunts in it. Like yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not an action yeah. movie, but the, the, he puts a little action at the end, and you can tell he's going to be good at Did it. Did you recognize Sid Haig? Yeah, <laughs> Sid Haig is in it. That's in fun. Uh, yeah, and. Um, I saw a 2004 recut where they added a lot of CGI stuff. It's actually um, not that bad, though. It's not that bad yeah. because it doesn't fundamentally change a lot about it. Uh, yeah. There was a, a bit where there were, like, savages, like these creatures that were going to come out and eat you. Mm-hmm. In the original version, it was just dwarf actors, like, in these monster costumes. Uh-huh. Uh, in the version I saw, it was, like, these CGI wolf monsters. They yeah. actually removed the actors and put in creatures. A, a that's more sensitive. Yeah. Uh, B... The CGI looks really good, actually. It's yeah. really creepy looking because mm. um, they're like they're filmed in shadow. You don't get yeah. like a good close up of I, them. I, I I always believe that if you go back and you recut or you re-edit something, mm. that the original version should always be available. I don't think that going back and recutting right into something is inherently the worst thing in the world. What I hate is erasing history. Well, but and can, I think this re-edit is pretty good. Consider this: we're talking about sort of the the immutability of film and how you can use montage to essentially slice open reality. Uh-huh. Where does a recut classic fall into that? Oh, that's its own kind of culture. Yeah, thing. because because it it is oh. rewriting history, and that's something uh, that's interesting. That's I, something I thought about uh, it that way. Uh, George Lucas did with. Star Wars, yeah. and I'm wondering mm. if you know a lot of people saying, "Don't touch Star Wars." It's kind of great the way it is. You put it out there; that's the record now. Yeah. And when you go back and change it and create a new version of Star Wars, you're kind of erasing history. But George Lucas, who was raised on these montage types of films, well, I wasn't raised on it, well, but he, in, film in film school, school, it was very influential. So, yeah, th- that's what I meant. It was, For the sake of clarity, it, uh, it films in, in a film school sense was weaned on these movies. Uh, probably just saw a recut of his own movie as just the way cinema operates. Yeah. He's clearly looking at these things and, and saying, well, you know, a recut here, twisting it around, putting these things in different order, Changing adding these the sound images. design. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, all, all of these things as completely permittable in film because film is uh, not permanent. Film is ephemeral, in, I think, in, in George Lucas's mind. And that might be where he and a lot of his fans don't see eye to eye. Well, again, he's he, George Lucas has often described himself as something of an experimental filmmaker. And I wish he'd go back. Well, he kind yeah. of he kind of never left, but it's interesting. Like I look at George Lucas the way a lot of people look at someone like Guillermo del Toro, for example, mm-hmm. where Guillermo del Toro uh, is a filmmaker, and every time he makes a movie, it tends to have one of two different tones. Mm-hmm. He tends to either make serious, uh, grim, thoughtful, resonant fables, 
or fun stuff. And <laughs> so, like, on the grim, resonant, brilliant fable uh, uh, realm, that's where you get stuff like Pan's Labyrinth or The Shape of Water or The Devil's Backbone. And on the fun stuff, you get stuff like Pacific Rim mm. and Hellboy 1 and 2 and Blade Monster 2. Monster movies, yeah. yeah. And then, like, yeah, oh, okay, um... What's the what's the haunted house movie? Crimson Crim- uh, Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak's kind of yeah. in the middle, but whatever. Well, like generally speaking, that's, it's that's, one of two ways. Pastiche but, is but what that one is. Here's but, the uh, thing that unlocks that for me. Um, George Lucas is kind of the same way. He's got this fear of the future. Mm. He's got this anxiety about losing our humanity. But it's incredibly clear that what he sees as rescuing us from that is observing the past and yeah. living through the past. And, and in a very literal way oh, in Star golly. Wars. And, yeah. And where are we now with Star Wars and nostalgia? Golly. But here's the interesting thing. Mm. THX 1138, the feature film, opens not with a scene from THX 1138, but with a preview for a Buck Rogers serial. Now, we already did the Flash Gordon serials. Mm. Flash Gordon beat Buck Rogers to the marketplace in terms of cinema, but Buck Rogers actually came first. The image of this idea of mankind's future mm. as being plucky and bright where uh one you know person who is smart and forthright set, set in the future yeah. yeah and one person who is smart and forthright and willing to do the right thing can change the day and save the world and all that good stuff uh THX 1138 is about that same thing except we fucked up the future mm-hmm. i think George Lucas sees these things as interconnected. I think George Lucas sees his vision of the past as having a direct relationship to the future. Mm-hmm. To, to the future of uh, te- you know film technology in a very literal sense. Uh, in the way that it inspires maybe children to get excited about cinema. A lot of people, their love of cinema started with Star Wars. Um, it inspires people to have heroic ideals. Which is one of the reasons why I find the prequels problematic. Because the protagonist is a space Nazi. But... I think he sees these things as directly related, and I think the prequels are his attempt. I think they're clumsy and not very well told, but I think they're his attempt to sort of bridge that gap from Mm. this sort of plucky everyman hero saving the world from Nazis Mm -hmm. to trying to find a way in which that bright, heroic, everything is going to turn out okay for the most part world became fascism became essentially the world of THX 1138 where the empire is the fascist state of THX 1138 as we've already discussed so how did that happen how do we get from this world of bright adventurers Uh where everything is going to be awesome and uh, serialized and full of adventure and wacky sidekicks and how do we get to THX 1138 from there and Mm. I think that's his what he tried to do Mm. with the prequels I don't think they work terribly well but I do think the intention is clear I, I don't think I quite agree because okay. I, I don't think the um, the future of THX one one three eight isn't fascism. It's not uh, uh, an oppressive Nazi like government regime. It's it's essentially human humanity kind of voluntarily kowtowing to the their own technology. Mm-hmm. It's m- more recent corollary would be something like Wall-E, okay, uh, where people are I see what you mean so, so okay. concerned with. Uh, c- controlling themselves that they are uh, kind of are just born into this world not really understanding what's going on. I don't see... Uh, I guess you're, so what you're saying is that if someone is directly responsible for destroying the world in this way, then it becomes 
a parallel, but because THX 1138 doesn't have a yeah, central uh, figure, doesn't have a Darth Vader or exactly, an Emperor who did exactly. this to there's, us, we seem to there, have done this there, to ourselves. There's not a villain in THX 1138. We're the villains in THX 1138. But I think, I think, the, I think, one, I think narratively you can't really get there with Star Wars because it's too clean and yeah. old fashioned a narrative. But I think the idea that George Lucas has, and he's pretty blunt about it in the prequels is the idea that fascism didn't happen just because someone schemed it. Hmm. Fascism happened because people were convinced to ask for it. And that's yeah. functionally well, um, very, very similar as we the, asked for our lives to become something right. that was oppressive to be because fair, uh, we thought it seemed like the right thing or the easy thing to do at the time. To be fair, that that rendition of the Star Wars story didn't come until much, much later into its life. Well, that's uh, my you're, point. You're talking about... Uh, 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 um, I'm talking about Revenge, Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, uh, I'm not saying that that was from part of the DNA. Which was like I'm saying 2005. You know, which was. I'm talking know. about George Lucas later as a filmmaker. Yeah, that's what I'm um, talking. About. I think that's what was on his mind is trying to find a way to get back to that through Star Wars. I, I suppose which is, so. I think it's misguided, well, but it's, I think it's, it's misgui- interesting. It's misguided and it's weirdly ironic because he is using all of these weird uh, new technologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, to essentially, and a lot of critics notice this, squeeze the soul out of something that was that used to be a little bit more grounded, down to earth, mm-hmm. and human. Yeah. Agreed. All of a sudden, you know, a lot of people compared them unfavorably to video games uh, in that video game technology at the time. The characters didn't look so real. They weren't the kind of characters you related to necessarily. Yeah, uh, it was very stilted. Every, yeah, everything is really artificial in those uh, those prequel movies. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, I'm I'm wondering if. George Lucas today feels a bit of a bit of a pang of regret as to what Star Wars became. I think he's talked about that a little bit. Yeah, you look at let, let's say Earth is the present, Star mm. Wars is the past, and THX 1138 is the future. Sure, uh, 2187 is Earth. It's where everything fractured. Mm-hmm. Star yeah, Wars, exactly. Star, Star Wars, the original Star Wars, is the ideal version of the past where people can live with nature and connect to the Force. Yeah, there's still like uh, antagonism. Mm-hmm. There's still conflict, but things are comparatively pretty simple. Yeah, yeah, and and our heroes are you know, bickersome. Uh, they, they're they have, handsome and beautiful. Uh, they're, ha- they're handsome they and they're beautiful, but they, and... they have complaints and ambitions. I, you yeah. know, I don't. They're larger than life. No, they're they're not larger than well, life. That's they my are, point. My point is, I mean, they, they are. World. They're archetypal people, but in terms of this, like, sort of grand fracturing of the world, uh, we're seeing uh, much more humane human characters in this galaxy far away in a long, long time ago. Uh, then we go to modern day Earth, you know, nineteen sixty seven mm-hmm. Earth, where things just started to fall apart, and we're sort of to starting to see that we're interconnected right at the right at the moment when we're dividing ourselves off. Yeah. And then we're in the future with THX 1138 when we've deliberately divided ourselves off. We live in glass boxes. Mm-hmm. Our confessionals have clear walls. <laughs> uh, and people, when they sort of outlive their usefulness, are what, what's the term they use for oh, S- SUH, the, the roommate character? Oh, I forget. They, they just sort of like cremate you and then reassign your number to a fetus in a jar. Yeah. Uh, no, it's La, L-U-H. La, L-U-H, yeah. yeah. Um, they, they cremate L-U-H and they give her name to a new person. Yeah. It's like, so you don't really have a, a number. You're just sort of, your number is passed around. Yeah. As a way of sort of keeping you try, it's it's. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, people are placated. It's really, it's really like Brazil in a lot of ways. People um, are placated by work, 
by entertainment and by drugs and by yeah. drugs by opiates of the masses so, one for all the opiates yeah. of the masses actual work, opiates work, work 1984 <laughs> yeah uh opiates brave new world and mm. uh entertainment fahrenheit 451 yeah or i guess the feelies are also brave new world but uh i, I would actually yeah. argue the drugs are also kind of 451 but whatever they're uh, all it's all <laughs> we have a general idea of how humanity will lose its way yeah um or and, at least a general fear and of the last shot of thx 1138 is actually the con- his first feature film contains the conclusion of his whole career <laughs> cracking out of the technology he has blocked himself inside of mm-hmm. and emerging obsessed with, in, yeah. Uh, and yeah have become obsessed with changed the world with maybe arguably made filmmaking worse <laughs> there's an argument to there's be made. an argument to be made that yeah. it, you know, this sort of increased artificiality is robbing film of its ecstatic truth climbing up through a ladder, breaking through the surface, and finding yourself on the surface of the Earth again in a shot very much like we saw Luke Skywalker back in Star Wars. Yeah. Looking up at the sun and realizing that there's still the natural world out there waiting to be rediscovered. Mm-hmm. George Lucas is in hell right now. <laughs> I don't that's probably not true. No, but I'm, I'm seeing a big Citizen Kane kind of arc with George he's, Lucas. He's here. talked about how that the, the success of Star Wars has distracted him from his uh, the art passion, from a yeah. lot of his passions, and that he's more interested in this probably experimental filmmaking. Mm. When you look actually at a lot of the films that Lucasfilm put out that weren't Star Wars or Indiana Jones, they are incredibly experimental. A lot of them, sometimes total failures. Yeah, but uh, they're Howard, all, Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck is one example. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, what was uh, uh, Mishima uh, Life in... Oh Paul yeah, yeah, the the, uh, the Paul Schrader, Paul Schrader movie. Yeah. That's a fantastic motion picture mm-hmm. that is very daring, very boldly stylish. It's about a really touchy subject. I think it's brilliant mm-hmm. that movie, but that's a totally different thing. It's, what's the uh, what's the animated film? Um, oh, Strange Magic. No, 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 no. The from the early eighties. Um, it's not oh. Happily Never After. It's. Um, Oh, what is going to do? His, his animated film? Uh, well, George Lucas didn't direct it. Stra- uh, Strange Magic was the one he did uh, in sort of the, the mid-2000s. Uh, yeah, it was actually a film that was like a passion project of someone else who typically worked uh, with... Was uh, it the Snow White film? Was that a Lucas film? No, 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 no. Which was, no, no. that was Happily Ever After. No, 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 no. I'm going Lucas for... Lucasfilm did Land Before Time. Twice Upon a Time. Twice Upon a Time. Twice Upon a Time. You ever see Twice Upon a Time? No. It's really interesting. Uh, it is a, an animated film about uh, fantasy creatures who uh, basically gets trapped in the real world, and there's a lot of really novel uh, animation stylings in it, and it's kind of trapped halfway between mm-hmm. uh, childlike and very adult. Um, do you, uh, uh, they also did a really experimental film that I think demands a, a resurgence. I think it's a really brilliant film, and people do not talk about it enough. More American Graffiti. I haven't seen more American Graffiti. A lot of people haven't. Uh, American it's, it's the follow-up. They, like, yeah, the characters grow up. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, so American Graffiti, I'm not going to go on too big a rant about this, but American Graffiti was George Lucas's second feature film. It's a film based on a lot of like George Lucas's personal past. It's about hot rodders in the 1950s and a whole bunch of people like on the last day of school. Uh, they're all about to go off to be to live their adult lives, mm. and it's just everyone running I, around I've, having I've, their adventures. It's wonderful. I've, and I've projected, I did project a double feature at the New Beverly of American Graffiti and more American Graffiti. But you didn't Graffiti. get to actually watch it. It, it happens. Sa- sadly, no. It happens. Yeah. Um, American Graffiti, hit film, giant hit film, mm. uh, nominated for Best Picture. Like, it's great. Uh, more American Graffiti came out towards the end of the 70s, and 
it's more experimental than that, and I think it's even better. Because it follows everybody after that, but it doesn't follow them at the same time. So follows, you know, the guy who ended up becoming uh, a race car driver, like, over the course of, like, one summer, like, the next year. And mm-hmm. then it follows, like, a guy who went off to the Vietnam War, like, two years later. And then mm-hmm. it follows what happened to Ron Howard and his wife as they learned that their uh, sort of white liberalism doesn't fucking count when they accidentally find themselves in the middle of a college riot. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they actually have to live up to their ideals. Everything is shot in a different style. Everything is edited in a different pace. Uh, the different segments often feel like different genres. It all connects really fucking well. Uh, the ending is haunt. The ending still haunts me. Actually, of more American Graffiti. Like I think more American Graffiti is a better and more interesting film than American Graffiti, mm-hmm. and I love American Graffiti. It's been a while since I've seen American Graffiti. Really I saw it when I, when I was a teenager. I saw it before I saw Star Wars, yeah. and. Um, uh, I remember disliking it. Um, I think really? I think that's sort of like freewheeling, man. We're cool teens, and we're gonna <laughs> hot ride around. Yo, I'm, I'm 15 years old. I'm watching Star Trek and reading books. I don't give a shit about cars. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't relate to this experience of like cruising for chicks. It's like it, it felt so spoiled to me. That mm. um, and indeed it was. It was made by white, white kid from Northern California. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I just sort of bristled at, at its presentation. Now that I'm an older man with mm-hmm. gray in my beard and I'm going through a midlife crisis because I tried dyeing my hair recently, yeah. uh, pink, not not dyeing my hair to get rid of gray just because yeah. I want to go crazy colors, um, I think I might connect to something a little bit differently. Yeah, I think the one-two punch of Happy Days and American Graffiti mm. kind of invented a nostalgia as we know it now. Specifically, fifties nostalgia. Yeah. Well, I think even then, I think we apply that fifties nostalgia to like the eighties now. This sort of yeah. halcyon era where everything was awesome, even if it was Transformers or GoBots. Like <laughs> everything was great, even though the greatness was shit. Yeah, and that's true for awful. a lot of shit. And that's yeah. true for a lot of shit in the fifties. For everything that we love mm. about the fifties, everything that was super great about the fifties. Oppression was rampant. Yeah, sexism was yeah, the so everything law was great the in the fifties, unless Racism. you were a woman or a black person or a gay person. Yeah, or, like yeah. If, yeah, or really anything. Really, like mm. it was all really fucked up, but superficially, a lot of it seemed pretty good, right? And we mm. want to chase that part. It's all fucked up. American Graffiti is rose-colored glasses, but they're very well-made glasses. All right. <laughs> uh, more American Graffiti, I feel, strips a lot of that away and actually is a little bit more uh, earthy and honest and cynical sometimes. And I just think it's a really interesting film. And I think it's a real bum rap. It was recently re-released on a home video. Right. If you've never seen it or you saw it a long time ago and you just didn't like it because it wasn't like American Graffiti, I highly recommend... I mean, George Lucas didn't direct that one, but watch that with mm. the knowledge of George Lucas and Lucasfilm being interested in experimenting with the form and taking something that seems pretty straightforward and playing and turning it into this sort of macro version of 2187 where we're actually like combining all of these disparate mm. ideas and storylines and dialogues and themes and creating an ill larger mm. image. Um, oh it's, my gosh, this was directed by Bill L. Norton who did Convoy. He wrote yeah. he wrote Convoy. Yeah. Which look up the history of Convoy Convoy's at some point. It's weird. It's a bad movie too. Oh, it's terrible. It's awful. It's not <laughs> of all the trucker movies, it's the yeah. one I like the least. And and it's a Sam Peckinpah film. Oh, Sam Peckinpah just did it for the money. Well, he did it for the money and yeah. in fact, uh there's a really wonderful story about how Sam Pe- Sam Peckinpah was like drinking on set and was just talking about how awful everything was and he was misdirecting scenes. Uh-huh. And uh, I think it was Chris Christopherson who's in that movie. Uh, uh but, yeah. Uh yeah, Chris Christopherson is insufferable the- in that movie. <laughs> 
that. I hate him in uh, that movie. He and, sucks. And Chris Christopherson, like who who like became friends with Sam Peckinpah, is like, oh gosh, everything's really terrible. So he took it upon himself to go to the studio. Is about to fire Sam Peckinpah for being just a drunken dickhead, and mm. and he talked to the studio into keeping him on. It's like, don't fire Sam Peckinpah. He's a brilliant man. I know he's a drunken dickhead, but he's gonna pull it out. You've seen some of his wonderful works. And he went back and he told Sam Peckinpah, look, the studio is about to fire you. But I went to them and I said, I've, I've saved this production. You can continue making this film you want. And Sam Peckinpah said, you dick. I was trying to get fired. <laughs> I hate this fucking truck movie. I'm not going to make it. Probably use that very word. It's my, my favorite movie based on a C.W. McCall song. <laughs> I am so glad we got to have a conversation about the movie Convoy. In the <laughs> this is the only... I defy you. Uh-huh. Anyone listening, find another Star Wars podcast where there was an extended conversation about the movie Convoy. Convoy. <laughs> find it. If you find anyway. that, I will... I don't know. High five you when the anyway, quarantine I, I, stops. I, 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 I think know. we've kind of covered everything with 2187. It's think, really interesting and think, it really impacts us when, a lot. When uh, George Lucas finally signed over uh, Star Wars to Disney, he, he described it like a divorce. Uh, it was yeah. really sort of emotionally painful. Not because it was like sort of letting something go, but because... That was the, his life. It was, well, it was his life, but the relationship had been really bad for a long time. And uh, he is, is, is has even said in uh, interviews, it's like, why do, should I keep making Star Wars if whenever I do it, people just call me a terrible person? Yeah. It's like, I'm trying to tell us this, this shit is mine. And everybody keeps on coming at me as if I'm, you know, the sort of George Lucas breaking ruined their my thing. child. Yeah, yeah. You're breaking my toys. Like, but I made it. It's my toys. What, what, what say do I have know, in this? Even and, if, like, and I don't like the prequels very much. There's stuff. I like in them, but I don't think they're good movies for the most part. Oh no, they're they're they are. Let me just say unequivocally, they are bad movies. I would say Phantom um, Menace and Attack of the Clones are unequivocally bad movies. I think there's enough good stuff in Revenge of the Sith that I can watch that I, one. I do like and that have a good of, time. It kind of linked up with Star Wars in, yeah. in a, a solid way. The Sith is clearly the best one. Yeah. That's that I will say. But I don't think they're good movies. And when I was young, yeah, I was probably a dick about it. Mm. But yeah, it's okay. Yeah, but, it's also okay if Star Wars starts to suck. Yeah, it's like okay to let it like go. Rise so of Skywalker he, sucked. I didn't like it at all, and for once, everyone agreed with me. And and I'm just like, okay, so it sucks now. Can we move on? <laughs> now that Star Wars sucks, there will there'll always be some Star Wars out there, but maybe okay, the universe well, can stop revolving around it for well, a bit. I mean, now that Disney's taking a big hit, we'll see what the future of Star Wars yeah, is we'll like. See. Coronavirus might wipe it out, but I, don't uh, think, I think they're going to lean back they're, on they're it real hard. It. I mean, like even even with the the lack of popularity. Rise of the Skywalker ended up making like over a billion dollars. That's true. It was, it was it was a hit film, like, and you know, Mandalorian yeah. is a big hit. So um, yeah, it's still fine. Uh, but the he let he let Star Wars go. He handed it over to the to Disney, and he said, "Well, here's some ideas of what you could do with Star Wars." And they kind of said, ha, ha, "No." And uh, they said, "We're we're going to do a nostalgia film. We're going to kind of redo it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Redo the same thing. We're going to make it as familiar as possible." George Lucas didn't like that. No, he wanted that's to what push fa- it. that's what fans wanted. He wanted to push it in a new direction. So he's kind of washed his hands of it. And, and I and I like um, some of the stuff Disney's done with it. I also hate some of the stuff uh, Disney's and done. And George with Lucas it. has said, like, on I remember seeing some interview footage with him on the red carpet uh, when. The Force Awakens opened at the uh, premiere, yeah. and he said, uh, like, what are you doing these days? Well, he has a new daughter. He's just raising a child. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, uh, he's been making films, like, at home. Mm. And he's always talked about how he wants to get back to making these short films, these sort of short, abstract films. Yeah. He says they're not going to see light of day. These are for me. Mm-hmm. I'm just sort of getting my creative juices flowing. 
I want to see those movies. I feel like it's going to be like want... Prince's Vault, like someday. Yeah, so George yeah. Lucas, hopefully a long time from yeah, now. Thirty Lucas, years from now, George, George Lucas, Lucas passes, passes away and then a few decades will pass, and then yeah. he'll let those out into yeah, the public. Yeah, it's an, it, it, or like all those like unpublished J.D. Salinger books are supposed to come out someday. Like mm. they're done. Yeah, yeah, they're coming out. They just they have to wait. Oh. Because it's a fine. St- stipulation in the will. Yeah, fine. So someday I'm I'm wondering what those are like because yeah. I'm willing to bet it's going to be a lot more like something like 2187 mm-hmm. where he's just sort of playing with abstractions. He's dealing with sound montages and weird effects. I mean, look. Trying has... to get into this experimental mindset that is so exciting when you're what in I, film school. What I think is interesting about the possibility of George Lucas returning to experimental filmmaking mm-hmm. is a lot of experimental filmmaking is made by people on very limited budgets. Why? There's no market for experimental film. <laughs> exactly. You can't sell it. Like, you might be able to get an experimental film that still has kind of a narrative out in the marketplace, but even then, you need to make it cheap enough that you can make a budget, because otherwise no one's going to fund that. Mm. George Lucas is a billionaire who has his own movie studio, his own high-tech, top-of-the-line sound equipment, CGI artists. A George Lucas experimental film would be freed from all limitations of budget Hmm. now that might not be a good thing a lot of people say that adversity makes for better art sometimes that's true however wouldn't it be interesting to see what happens if we lift that you know restriction Hmm. george lucas you know maybe after all these decades of working on only one thing might have a lot of steam to let out it might be really fascinating to see what he does i hope we get to see those someday yeah i really really i hope there's a bunch and i hope one day there's a glorious box set that comes out from Mm. criterion and even if they suck i'll be Mm. fascinated yeah Uh, it'll be like um like coppola's late filmography oh god Twixt was such an interesting idea. Twixt, uh, first of all, Twixt is a garbage fire. It is so bad. <laughs> I never um, actually sat down and watched it, but the oh idea gosh. about if you, okay, Twixt is weird, and people do not talk well, about I, it. I was talking about something like um, Tetro, okay. you know, something a but little I'm bit thinking, more. <laughs> you can get your fingers under no, it. No, Twixt is truly experimental. At least the idea of it was. Uh, Twixt is a story about Val Kilmer as a writer who goes to a small town and there's horror and shit. Whatever. Well, well, and and also he he's trying to solve a real murder mm-hmm. while working on a murder mystery. Yeah, the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe visits him in his dreams. It's pulp and it's and pulp crap. And there's vampires there. There's it's, a lot going on in that it's, movie. It's pulp crap. Yeah. Okay, but here's the thing that Francis Ford Coppola wanted to do with Twixt. Mm. There wasn't enough interest, and to the best of my knowledge, it hardly, if ever, screened this way. The idea with Twixt was it would be edited on the fly. Mm-hmm. It's not just one cut of the movie and it goes to every movie theater. The idea is you would watch Twixt with Coppola in the back. Coppola would be in the theater with you. Yeah, deciding what scene comes next. Maybe even deciding what shot comes next or what sound cue comes next. And gauging off of the audience, where am I going to take you guys today? Yeah. That's a fascinating experiment. Mm. That could be really, really interesting. I really wish I could have seen it that way. Yeah, I, I saw just a solid cut on video. Yeah, that's end up how was not in the room with me. Well, there's no way to do that on home video. Like mm. it's it, the marketplace isn't designed for that kind of experimentation. Well, there, there is if you are willing to accept, and if this was a way the film could work, a, like a randomizer. I, I know DVDs of Clue did that. You could choose cuts of Clue, which contained uh, a specific ending you chose. Because the shtick with Clue is that they shot several endings and then they released it in mm-hmm. theaters 
each with a different ending. So, so like, you wouldn't know out. what ending you'd get. If you've seen it on home video, you see that they show you an ending of the movie, mm-hmm. and then they rewind it, basically, they put and an, just say... In, a little intertitle, yeah, and that's, says, but here's a different ending. Yeah, yeah, and then finally they say, and here's what really happened. Mm-hmm. That's not how you saw it in a theater. In a theater, you just had one of those endings, and you had no idea which one you were going to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, Fascinating idea. Uh, yeah, and I think it's great, and it's a great way to like lure people back to the theater. It's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. It was Miss Scarlet, really, because it was Miss White. Am I really? Wait a minute, let's right. go pay again. And uh, yeah, but it's they, actually the, really kind of brilliant. The movie wasn't a hit on, when it on, came out, so that didn't happen. And then but on, neat idea. on DVD, you can choose a, like a, a random ending. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, like it. You can. Either, I like. I like the way it's paced the, the with all ending. three. But yeah. That, yeah, that works. That's fun. Well, because the movie's so frantic that it just sort of adds to the franticness. And it's actually really fun. With I think you it's a see all film. of the endings, but uh, yeah, you can also get it with sort of a random ending, and that's, that's and that's the way they did it uh, when the Sins of the Flesh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show Shadowcast here mm. at the New Art Theater, when they did a Shadowcast of Clue, they did a random one. They did a random ending. Oh, that's fun. That was yeah, fun, fun ca- to watch them scramble. And the cast was never informed which one it was, so they had to be prepared for whichever <laughs> that's one cool. it was. All right. Well, anyway, listen. That is episode zero uh, mm. for this week. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, Especially thank you everybody who went out and found 2887, or sorry, 2187. Uh, That is currently available. It's pretty easy to find online. It's on YouTube, Amazon. It's interesting. Check it out, especially if you haven't seen that kind of experimental film. Again, it's 10 minutes. Free your mind. Mm. Try it out. I think you'll be really interested. Um, And next week on Star Wars Episode Zero, we're going way back Mm. to the year 1939. And watching a little film you may have heard of called The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard Sorry, of, Oz. The Wizard of Oz. Oz. Um, the Wizard yeah. of Oz. We're going to talk about Wizard of Oz, everybody. It, it's um, the most famous movie of all time. It's more uh, famous uh, than Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, maybe that's debatable. Maybe but. Star Wars. I think Star Wars has overtaken it now, but it's in the top five. I think we live in a world where uh, the people who are old enough to remember a world without... The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. are very elderly. And very few. Yeah. And very few. We're going to live in a world pretty soon where everyone has seen it. It's mm-hmm. kind of like one of the bedrock pieces of American culture. No, it is. It's really important. It's uh, it's interesting because it wasn't even that big a hit when it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a hit. It oh, wasn't, but it wasn't as big a hit as you might think. Well, well yeah, it, it wasn't was, like a, a freight train, but it was a hit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's one of the most influential films of its kind. It's one of the great epic cinema journeys. Uh, and uh, yeah. You better believe it influenced Star Wars and a lot, ton of other movies besides. <laughs> and we have a real good time revisiting uh, a true American classic. So, uh, thank you everybody for listening to Star Wars Episode Zero. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. We want to give a special thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And over there you will find a ton of exclusive content, uh, including commentary tracks, bonus podcasts about stuff like Firefly, Star Trek, and a podcast dedicated to every single Academy Award nominee for Best Picture in history. We've got a show called Not on Disney Plus, where we talk about Disney stuff that isn't on Disney Plus and should be. It's a ton of of stuff and you'll all get access to it uh, depending on what tier uh, you subscribe to but in particular to everyone who is subscribing right now we 
give you our greatest thanks. We couldn't be doing this right now, given the economic situation and mm-hmm. everything going on. We couldn't be doing this without you. So thank you, everybody, for keeping us running, for giving us an opportunity to talk to you about film history and new movie reviews and pop culture and all the stuff that we all love. And Convoy. And mostly Convoy. (laughs) And uh, may the force be with Convoy. (laughs) 